Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Lorne Michaels is one of the most influential figures in American entertainment. I went to visit him at his corner office in Rockefeller Center. It's 17 floors above the skating rink, and there's a huge fish tank in the corner. It's the same office he's had since 1975 when he started Saturday Night Live and proceeded to launch the careers of some of the biggest names in comedy. Belushi, Aykroyd, Gilda Radner, Bill Murray, Chris Farley, Adam Sandler, Chris Rock, Will Farrell, Tina Fey. The list goes on and on and on. He's a rare producer in that he's truly involved in all aspects of production, yet he says when he does his job right, he leaves no fingerprints. Lorne Michaels' life in comedy began in the late 1960s when he worked at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in Toronto alongside his writing and performing partner, Hart Pomerantz. But it wasn't in television. Lorne Michaels started out in radio. It was a show called Five Nights a Week at this time, and we did political satire. Every week we thought we were potentially bringing down the government, and the fact that no one was listening didn't occur to us for at least the first year, but we loved doing it. It was just a chance to write and perform every week. Radio had a larger budget at that point than television. Because people had more radios than the televisions in Canada? I think it was just, it's a government system, right. and they allocated based on fairness, which is a very Canadian thing to do, right. not necessarily um, on the edge of technological change. But there was a, a radio show produced like The Tonight Show, full orchestra, done every day in Toronto, which was called the Russ Thompson Show. And we were hired as the writers on that, and we would perform once or twice a week. Now, where did that begin, though, for you? Did you go to school for that, or did you? No, 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 no. I went uh, When I graduated from University of Toronto, I had taken nothing that was of any practical No drama, use. no theater, no writing. Oh, I'd, I'd worked in the theater there, but it was more... There was a, a review that university college, UC Follies, which was a satirical review, music and comedy, and I'd 
co-wrote that and directed it. So, so from the beginning, I mean, even before you go into CBC Radio and before Hart Pomerantz, right. I mean, even in college, what you characterize as satiric review, comedy review, yeah. that was your bailiwick from the yeah, beginning. Yeah, I think it was what was in the air at the time. It was just the beginning of the questioning of authority, which was the year I did it was 1964. We were no longer talking about World War II. In the first part of my childhood, that's all anyone talked about. Every teacher I had at school had been in the war. It was pretty much the gloom of that hung over most of the 50s. And the survival of that. Yeah, and then we, television came into our lives and, and everything changed. And so the CBC, how long are the radio years? Uh, the radio years, think three years. The funny part about the show, the Russ Thompson show was, at a certain point, five or six months into it, the producer of the show came in and met with us and he said, the show's not working. We don't know whether it's you guys or Russ. So we thought we'd start with you guys. <laughs> so we were Your let first go. show, lesson about show business. Yeah, and then we began writing for comedians, uh, Woody Allen and Joan Rivers and a little bit Dick Cavett. But how and do you get into that door? Hart, like that? Hart did that. He was very good at approaching people. We would come down to New York to write for people. And Woody was incredibly uh, generous and encouraging, and we had no impact at all on his career, but he was very helpful. Then we got hired on a television show in 1968 as writers called The Beautiful Phyllis Diller Show, <laughs> and uh, which was a variety show at NBC in Burbank. And then from there, when that was canceled, we were hired on Laugh-In, which was in its first season. For George. For George Slaughter, yeah. What was the dynamic when you go to Los Angeles in the late 60s well, and you're writing for network television? Did you feel like that was... It wasn't at all the romantic idea of what I thought uh, being right. in show business would be. Well, on Laugh-In, the writers would write and then it would be edited by a, a head writer. And then we did not go to the read-through. We were at, at, at a motel in Burbank, uh, and we would all have lunch together, and that was fun. And you didn't even have lunch, have offices. No, we had offices, but they were in a motel, uh, <laughs> which was, you know, it was the boom period of Burbank. Uh -huh. And uh, so... Um, Let's not let NBC know that we've used offices that are motels before. Exactly. Yeah. And, and what was interesting about it was that it was the number one show... And on one level, it was like the greatest credit you could have, and it certainly did wonders for, you know, like self-image and career, but it wasn't fun. You'd write, uh, you know, monologues for Dan and Dick, who were really nice to us. Did you get to go to the tapings of the show? We'd go to the studio if they were doing the monologues, and they would read it from the cards they would see it for the first they, they time. They were some of the most shameless card readers in history. I <laughs> no, remember but they that also show. Just, yeah. They would just see it for the first time yeah. on the card. They were like Dean Martin. They did not want their work to in, in any way interfere with their life. Yeah. We worked there for a year. And then I got a call from the head of the CBC asking what it would take to bring us back to do shows. You were still with Hart On then. television, yeah. Right. And that's where I learned how to do television. Why do you say that? Because I spent a huge chunk of my 20s, you know, in an editing room. We would shoot in the studio. We'd be in front of an audience. and then What we'd, show were you doing? It was called The Hart and Lauren Terrific Hour. Right. And, and the uh, two of you that were the... We were, were the, the stars. Brown and Martin of cast. that show. Yeah. And there was, you know, an ensemble and a musical guest. 
James Taylor was on one. Cat Stevens was on one. Is that where you one. birthed the idea for the other show that you eventually wound up doing? I don't know whether, you know, there was a real form then called Variety, and it was comedy variety, and it had, you know, music and comedy, and we would perform in front of an audience, but mostly it was built in the editing room in the way that Laugh-In was. I remember that we came out of the first show with like 16 hours worth of tape. And I, I met with the editor. I had no experience of it at all. And he said, well, we just, why don't we just watch it? So we watched the first four hours. We were discussing a sketch. He said, I think in that piece, we could pull out that part. And I was still thinking script. I wasn't in any way thinking visually. And he said, no, your arm there is is by your temple and then uh you put it down he was looking for continuity he was an editor he actually saw it i said how did you do that and he said i can teach your eye to see and he did i learned how things are put together and how what to look for in composition and how to make something work and the role that sound played because it's all radio with pictures nobody cared about sound then when we first did SNL, the first five years, it was a boom. When you see Elvis on Ed Sullivan, him and the Jordanaires, it's just a boom. Right. They got what they got. We have better sound on this interview than I had in the first 20 years of my career. And what I realized then about myself is that I'm much more interested in the production than I am in performing. What changed for you? Many people go the other way. I saw it in the editing room one night. I looked at myself before a take. I see my eyes checking the lighting, seeing where the cameras are in terms of their angles. And And you're seeing a guy who all his instincts are technical and directorial. Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing a guy who's preoccupied, and then the slate happens, and then there's this smiling artificial guy. yeah yeah snap yeah. too not artificial i'm sure i was sincerely well, it's all smiling artificial. Yeah, yeah right yeah, yeah. i assure you hollow yeah that's <laughs> what it was <laughs> in my opinion <laughs> speaking for myself it's all artificial yeah. yes exactly we, we, we reached I, out i had the find. same experience when i was on stage when i was at university of toronto in the theater there and we were doing a, a play written by shelley the poet and it was called chenchi i think deathly dull but that's not the point of it the point of it is I was in the middle of a scene with an actor, and it was exciting to be on stage and all that, but I looked in his eyes, and I realized, oh, he's actually that guy. You know, I knew how to do my lines with some charm, but he actually had become the character. Yeah, which I thought, oh, I see. That's what actors are. They actually can do that. You know, whereas I was... Some. Some. Yes. For me, it was like, it was fun to be in shows, and I'd done them at summer camp and I'd done them in high school and and uh but you had a pure instinct at that time where you just said there's this other thing I'd rather be doing that I was more and and, and you walked away so so you so you ended that situation there yeah well in Canada there was still a kind of national self-loathing best expressed by the then head of the CBC we were slow in getting our start dates for production for the next season and uh I had been offered by Sandy Wernick and Bernie Burlstein, who I'd met when I was working in California, agent and manager, respectively. They said, do you want to come back and work on a Burns and Shriver summer show? I like uh, them. For like, I love them. Yeah, they were, and they yeah. were funny. And it was like smart. 13 shows in 10 weeks. I 
went to the, uh, the head of the department at the CBC, and I said, I have this other offer, but I will stay here. At the time, I was caught up in the idea that I would be of the first generation of Canadian artists who would be able to stay in Canada. And why is that? Why did you feel that? Because everyone had always left. And the moment that you left in Canada, people started to treat you differently. And I thought, well, that's idiotic. We should be, we're evolved enough, we should be able to stay here and work here. The head of the CBC that I was working for said, I said, I have this offer and it's just for, you know, 10 weeks. He said, well, if you're that good, why are you here? And I thought, I want to be here. That. You know, and then I realized you could never fight against. Yeah. And also I I realized is Van Gogh a Dutch painter? He really painted in France. And I thought, oh, I see. So (laughs) nationalism isn't the best way to, you know, you go where the work is. So I went out and I did that. And then I came back. Uh, Even as we're talking about Canada, your accent just came back. You just said, well, I went out. Yeah, probably drips in and out. Yeah. Yeah. I realized I'd come to the end of that period. And I moved back to California in 1972. And I lived at the Chateau Marmont till I moved here, which is 75. I had my 30th birthday in the lobby of the Chateau Marmont, which hadn't had a party then, I believe since uh, Dorothy Parker lived there. Yeah. So it was certainly one of the happiest periods of my life. We're going to get to that in a minute, but you you, you have a real fondness for Los Angeles. Yeah, I love Los Angeles. Yeah, Yeah. you have a very, very warm spot for Los Angeles and you who are a New Yorker. Yes. The nice part about being Canadian is you don't have to make that decision. You know, you're in California and there's grass in February and the sun is shining, you go, this is fantastic. But if you're from New York, then LA becomes like, well, no, you know, it becomes that it's a lot of people get an entire career. Out of well, I think that people, the <clears throat> that's true. And I've been very guilty of that myself. The thing about Los Angeles is if you do it in your twenties, you can find and understand Sepulveda, which is, if you grew up in a city with a grid, you're going, yeah. well, so what do you mean? Yeah. This crosses Wilshire? And yeah. then it, then yeah. it, it, if it you're on that 10 Pico. freeway and you get off at Robertson <laughs> you, and, you, and you think you're up near the Beverly Center, exactly. you're wrong. Yes, exactly. It takes and, a lot and, of Thomas guides to But when out. you're in your 20s, you're going to a lot of parties where you're just following somebody or somebody gives you directions. And this is at a time, it's hard to recall, but it's pre-GPS. No, no one wants to learn where they're going. Yeah. But... Anyway, I had a very happy time there. And I worked for Lily Tomlin, and I wrote on her show, which was like 10 or 12 weeks. And at the end of it, it was time to go back to Canada, and I realized I wasn't... Visa-wise. I wasn't going back. No, it wasn't that. It was that the CBC wanted me to do something, but they wanted me back six months in advance. It was still that nagging, I'm going to be the Norman Lear of Canada yeah, thing. Yeah, or no, not even Norman Lear. I think it was just that you'd be able to work there. But here's what I realized without Malcolm Gladwell, who's also Canadian, articulating it because we didn't have the benefit of that then. It's the 10,000 hours. In doing 12 shows in 10 weeks, working at that pace, you get better. In Canada, working on a show every four months or five months, you overthink everything. There's so much at stake. And there was something about working at that pace and working in a system that was really clear cut. Like if the numbers were there and you had ratings, then you were a hit. And if they weren't there, then you were a flop. Uh, Whereas in Canada, you could be sustained by 
quote-unquote critical approval or the fact that what you were doing was quote-unquote worthwhile and at that point in my life I kind of needed clarity which is one of the reasons I'm drawn to comedy because you're trying really hard to make people laugh if they don't laugh it's really binary it works or it doesn't work yeah so I do Lily Tomlin's show it gets nominated for an Emmy it was a pilot special four series and I'm co-producing with Jane Wagner we spent forever on it And then at the end, it didn't get picked up. But Dick Ebersole, who was the new, newly appointed head of late night, had come from ABC Sports and had met Herb Schlosser on a plane. And by the time they landed, he was the director of late night television. And he had this idea of doing many pilots in late night, using late night to be a testing ground for primetime. It was actually kind of prophetic because now when you look at primetime, and all the networks, almost all the creative talent came from late night. I agreed to do one for Dick. And I was, as I said, living at the Marmont. And I came home one night, two o'clock in the morning, which was not unusual for me. And uh, there was a message from Dick. Can you be at the polo lounge at seven o'clock in the morning for breakfast? No better for me then than it is now. And I went... Um, Uh, Okay, what's it about? And he said, uh, they've decided to do one show as opposed to 20 pilots. And yours is one of the ones that they're, and they all want to meet you. So I came and it was Dick and the head of programming, the head of research, and the head of talent. I could kind of tell that they were like tribal elders in a way. They were just sort of looking at me like, is he all right? You know, it was just basically an approval process. Yeah. But I seemed normal enough, and was I, you know, trouble? I had long Someone hair. you could hand, yeah, well, that's interesting, because yeah. they, that's, twas ever thus in the business yeah. where, I mean, talent is not the only coin of the realm. Oh, totally. They want to realize, can we hand you a lot of money, and you're yeah, going to get and, the job and will you, does he seem like up? a flake, or yeah. whatever? And I, and I was, had just turned 30, but I did have credits, and I had sure. been nominated for stuff, and Dick called me, and he said it went well. And then they wanted me to fly to New York and to... How'd you feel about that? Uh, I was excited by it. But Herb Schlosser, who had a, a very romantic notion of, of production in New York, thought it should be live. Well, <laughs> um, I'd never done live, right. except for radio. And I said... What was everybody else in the processing? Was he the lone voice? He was the lone voice. He decided that it should be in 8H, because 8H was the big NBC studio, and it was lying vacant. And all of the production had moved to L.A. All Variety was in L.A. Cars and everything. All of that crap music hall, all of those Variety series, which were done in New York in this building, was all in Everything Burbank. went to yeah. Los Angeles, except so, daytime. Yeah, exactly. For me, live meant this. No pilot. Having done three pilots that everybody thought were great, but then somewhere in the process of making a pilot, all your most conservative instincts come out and you find yourself doing the thing that you think is going to be, it's like a college essay. It isn't what you really think or feel, it's what you think will get you in or get you on the air. So the idea that I could do a show in which the audience would see it at the same time as the network was thrilling. And also I was at a point in my career where I really thought I had nothing to lose. So I was going to take one more shot at television. I was going to see if I could do it the way I wanted to do it. And I pretty much did. The very first broadcast of the show live Uh was when? 
uh, in September, October 11, October 1975. October 11th, 1975 yeah. is the first broadcast of the show. And was the structure virtually the same it is now? A full the, dress the, at 8 o'clock? Yeah, the, yeah, that part was all, all the, the same. same. Although I think for the first show we did a dress rehearsal with the audience on Friday night. Oh. Just so that we'd have an extra one because we'd never actually done anything. And the crew was very funny. The crew was like an original old New York crew. They were all mildly overweight. They had donuts. We had crudite because we were from California. Right. Um, Had jets, jackets on. Yeah. And until we saw them move the cameras around in the way that they could because they knew that that world. Uh, I once did a show at CBS in a, their big studio, and they have no tradition of this over at CBS. And I realized when I'd taken the tour that all the cameras had stools beside them. It was only later when I realized the show was a complete mess. Oh, right. They haven't moved cameras there. They just sort of aimed it at Cronkite for the last 40 years. Right. It was that yeah. they set up their camera and then they'd sit on their stool. Right. The 8H crew, that crane flew around the studio. Sure. They learned that we knew what we were doing in terms of the content. and uh, They, they sensed there was a fit there. Yeah. This yeah. was going to be interesting for them as well. Exactly. This wasn't somebody at a desk. And, and work was camera. coming back to New York. There's a wonderful story when Eugene Lee, who's the designer I hired, who had just done Candide on Broadway. We did the very first set, you know, and it was like a $200,000 set. I couldn't get approval. Like, they wouldn't authorize the budget for it. I went up to Herb Schlosser's office. I just assumed, being Canadian, that I was just supposed to do the right thing and, and make a show that he would be proud of since he had authorized it. So we took it to his office, you know, very high up in the building, and it was a little model, and I don't think he'd ever seen a model, and suddenly we're moving <laughs> little cameras around and all that, and, and he said, well, what's the problem? I said, well, they, you know, it's, it's expensive. And they oh, fine, and we got the approval. And it was very paternal in the best sense of it, but Eugene had a very clear sense of what he wanted. We were showing New York City as it then was, which was kind of in decay and crumbling. Yes. So Forward to New York, drop dead. Exactly, yes. So when Herb came down to the studio the first time to see it and looked at the cracked paint, you know, thing which was where all the money was, of course, in terms of getting that exactly right, he said, I can't, I don't know. You know, I don't know what I was thinking. I I just thought the shop did this, you know, because he just assumed (laughs) it was a really bad paint shop. (laughs) Yeah, no, it was just that nobody knew whether production could gear up again in New York. And of course... It did, and and uh, still does. So when you do the show, uh-huh. October 11th, 1975, the first show uh-huh. is broadcast live. It yes. airs. Yes. And when it's over, describe how you feel after the very first show. I was the same way then that I am now. I only see the mistakes, and I tend to wear that up until about the second drink at the party. Even last week's show takes me really through midway through Sunday. It used to take me a couple days. I can get over it now in a day. Because you're always hoping that everything's going to work the way you were hoping it was going right. to work. You know, you and conceive you, of something. Yeah, and you see somebody Wednesday enter on, you know, on the left foot instead of the right foot, or the camera cut is late, or that cue gets screwed up, yeah. or that, or somebody It's that guy who right before the slate was, was yeah. looking at things. Yeah, never. he's still here. He's not yeah, going anywhere. Yeah, yeah. 
More from my conversation with Lorne Michaels is coming up in a minute. You're listening to Here's the Thing. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. We're in your office uh-huh. here at NBC, yes, which has been your office from day one. From day one, yes. from day one, and most of the furniture is exactly and most the of the furniture yeah. is exactly the same. Uh-huh. Uh, the joke is, we we hope that the people who run the network never really find out that where your this office is and how good you have it here. Well, you know, this desk, we didn't have budget for that, so we there was a, a maintenance guy here who said, "Well, there's a lot of furniture." <laughs> You know, that's in storage. So we said, can sure. we see it? So it was yeah. all the stuff in the 30s and 40s. Yeah. And this a desk box of batons for belonged Toscanini. to the then head of programming. And in the desk was a couple copies of like the racing form and Jellucil and Maalox. And I thought, <laughs> what am I getting myself into? It was so, it was the reverse of kind of holistic view yeah. of California, which I'd come here with. Yeah. Now. You look at the board, for those people who don't know, the arc of the whole season is on this infamous cork board on the wall. And there are the dates of each broadcast, the names of the confirmed uh, hosts, some prospective hosts, and their musical guests and so forth. Uh And the names of the people are still, not all of them, but many of them, the biggest names in the business. The biggest names in the business are coming here 30-something years later to host the show. I mean, you have Ben Stiller and Melissa McCarthy won the 
uh, uh, the Emmy Award, and Katy Perry's coming, and Jimmy Fallon, who's obviously double dipping on your payroll. Yes. Uh, Jonah Hill, and I don't want to ruin any other names. Yeah, yeah. Bieber's confirmed, yeah. and he's the music and that thing. I mean, the people that are the biggest names in the business are still coming here to host the show. Why do you think that that stayed that way? What? Well, I think, first of all, the best part is host. You get the best parts in most scenes, and we work really, really hard. Tonight, because it's Tuesday, I will leave here probably around 3 I used to do what the younger ones do, which was pretty much go through the night, but I don't anymore. Yeah, neither do I. No. And yeah. and I go... I used to see it with Smigel till three in the morning. Yeah, and, exactly. And, yeah, with those guys. And you and go... Conan. And I yeah. go, right, okay, and... Now I look at them, I go, you good? They're yeah. like, yeah, I'm like, I'm good. And yeah. I go home, one o'clock. And that's the commitment to it being the best it possibly can be. Uh, but I think also, to inject my own perspective, having done it many times. Many, many times. Many, many times. Possibly um, too many times. Well, but possibly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, there is, that's out there. People, yeah, yeah. people do feel that yeah. way. But, that, um, that was just um, me tweeting. The, this replaces a live component that is missing in most people's careers. They don't do theater, yeah. a lot of them. This is a chance for them to have a kind of a, it's, it's much more loose and kind of deconstructed and, and, and it can get a little sloppy if they're not like spot on and rehearsed. Well, it, doesn't have the, it doesn't have the kind of a, the gleaming perfection of movie making. No, and, and also uh, mm. uh, Seth Meyers, Norm MacDonald was at the show on Saturday and so mm. we were sitting at the party and, and Seth pointed out that Norm had given an interview somewhere recently where he was talking about the show and he said in what I thought was a, a nice way, it's now the only place left where you can be bad. You know, there's no laugh track. When something doesn't work, it's such a clear yeah. uh, silence. Yeah. And whereas you walk out of a situation comedy in front of a live audience, they're already cheering. Yeah. You know, even the theater They're, now, they're not taking any chances. Uh, the theater, people stand. The audience thinks they're supposed to do a standing ovation. Right. You know, and you go... Reflexively. Yeah. For a stand-up comic talent like Norm, I think one thing he might be reacting to is it gives people the hosts, whether they are comic performers or not, it gives them the recreation of like a club, being in a club. Yeah. And it's stripped down so that it's only at the end talent writing into a lens. There's no spectacle. We don't have, you know, much of a wide shot. Yeah. You're watching pure performance. Yeah. And I'm, for people to be able to soar like that, and when you see it happen, it is always amazing. You know, amazing to be standing there being me, having seen it as many times as I have. And the fact that every week we don't know how it's going to turn out. And the fact that I'm still as scared as I am every dress rehearsal. And honestly, I don't mean like we'll be drummed out of the business. I just mean that it is part of the process that people have to be bad before they can be good. When we have a great dress rehearsal, when the audience is way too hot, invariably something gets lost on air. When you come and do the show, um, I've never felt more raped and more violated yeah, than well, by the writers the, of your that's show. That's the original design. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've come yeah. on here, you know, seemingly weeks after I got divorced, and Bill Clinton, a.k.a. Daryl Hammond, is yeah. walking out telling me to put my oars in the water and set sail for the island of Punani with him. <laughs> yes. And, uh, yeah, so I'm yeah. just wondering, I mean, do you, do you find that that's a, a big part of their creative success? Is, there, is your complete Yeah, I think there's something they expect us to be honest. Yeah. They, they expect us it? to say what <laughs> what's actually happening. There's very little protection. Have you always been this irreverent your whole life? Yeah, probably. You have been, yeah. yeah. So this was really just meant to be. Yeah. What's the first movie you made 
post-1975. I guess Wayne's World, you know. Uh, Three Amigos wasn't the first one? Oh, sorry. Three Amigos I wrote uh, with Randy Newman and uh, Steve Martin. I have a copy uh, of your IMDb if you'd like to consult it before yeah, we yeah, go yeah, on. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, but I... I uh, that, Three but, Amigos uh, you wrote. Yes. We'd go to Steve's house every day, Randy and I and Steve. We'd meet for lunch, talk it down, and then we'd spend the afternoon writing, and it was a very happy time for me. And what about uh, after that? What was the next film you made? Then I came back to the show. I had left SNL in 1980. Right. And then Brandon was threatening to cancel it, and he called me. How many years were you gone? Five years. You were gone for five years? 80 to 85. Yeah. 80 to 85. I left with the original group, designers, the musicians, the cast, the writers. Listen, in the first five years, I didn't fire one person. So when I came back, I was sort of more psychologically built for that that it wasn't family in that sense that the what William Sean once called my pseudo egalitarianism was not healthy I had to accept that some people were not going to make it and that I'd better deal with that when it happened as opposed to just pretending painful it but unavoidable yes and so I learned how to be a boss which I, I I think I'd learned how to how to lead on some level, but I'd never learned how to be a boss. And I think when I came back, um, where you, you know, were less I, of a peer and more of a boss. Yes. And at some point, are you tempted to stop again and just go make films? It is what I do. It's the thing that. Um, but it also became, and I don't mean to be yeah. you know glib about it, but it also became like the aircraft carrier that you launched many planes off of. Yeah, yes. This is a yeah. power base for yes, you as an yes. entertainment producer. No question. Wayne's World was the first of those. Right. With Wayne's World, I think what I wanted to prove was that I could do a movie in the same way that sort of the Marx Brothers used to do their movies. They'd tour them first. So they knew where all the laughs were, and then they could go film them quickly. Like a test. Yeah. No one believes that we do what we do here in six days. Because there's not much of an approval process. Right. It just heads to 11.30. Whereas in LA... That was my experience when I first did the show. Yeah. It was mesmerizing. Yeah, there's so much money involved. It was like Habitat for Humanity building a house. Exactly. But the movie business, because it's way better run as is primetime television. Every paragraph is scrutinized and reviewed, and I say it every week, we don't go on because we're ready, we go on because it's 11.30. And that's just, it somehow focuses people, and I trust that process. And so with Wayne's World, I think we had, I can't remember how many days, but it was like 27 or something like that. But Fast. towards the end, there was a plot with a, father son which Rob Lowe was to be the son and I was hoping for Dennis Hopper to be the father and as we got close to shooting which we were like three weeks away we went oh so we just made it one person we just made it Rob you could make that kind of decision quickly the pace of SNL was like think of it do it and then think of something else Tina says the same thing about 30 Rock television conditions those muscles where you have to make fast decisions. Yes. And that puts the creative people in charge. I did a movie with Mick Jagger based on a book we both liked called Enigma, which is about code breaking in World War II. And Michael Apted directed it. And it was an independent film. It took us six years to get it made, which was longer than World War II. <laughs> and, I, and I realized, worked on it pretty hard, but when I finally saw it, because... There was German money in it, and there was, uh, I think, Japanese. I'm looking at the 
started the movie, we're at the premiere, and all of a sudden there's like all these names are there as producers, you know, sure. and, and I go, what? hey, excuse me, I was like, uh, and then I realized in movies, the person who does what I do isn't at the center. Right. Here I am, and that's fulfilling. In movies, what I like doing is the script, which I get obsessive about. Because you're a writer. Yeah, and then casting, and then editing, and then how to present it to the public in the sense of marketing. Now, you have this great success in, uh, you have the great success in late night television. And then you have success in primetime television. You produce TV shows, particularly now, that have done uh -huh. well. And you have great success in film, but you never worked in cable. And with your career, I mean, you never worked well, aggressively I did with, in cable. I did with Kids in the Hall, and I did with, now with Fred in Portlandia, which is on IFC. Do you feel that you haven't been as aggressive in cable as you might have been? I, I think that at the end of the day, you know... Um, You're more comfortable with network. Because I've grown I, to prefer I, I network because you've got to walk that tightrope yes. and you can't just go blue and yes. go crazy. To me, there's no creativity without boundaries. If you're going to write a sonnet, it's 14 lines. So it's solving the problem within the container. And I think for me, commercial television and those boundaries, I like it. I like that you can't use certain language. I like that you have to be bright enough to figure out how to get your ideas across in that amount of time with intelligence being the thing that you're you hope is showing not officially but you want it to be oh that was kind of bright we have really good writers here i think i can safely say that a lot of people in comedy did their best work here even though sure. they might be more successful in the things they did after well, more commercially successful and also i really believe that if you're going to stay champ you have to take fights and that means there's always young people, there's always people who are hungrier and more ambitious coming in, and you're working with people at the point of their career when nothing matters but the work. Right. How they live, how they're perceived. Most of the people who arrive here, their office is nicer than their apartment. <laughs> you know, And that's sort of what it's always been. And people just completely devote themselves to the show, and I think you can't do that past a certain age. You know, you have become someone who, when you genuinely talk to people about what a producer does in, in a constructive sense, and you're not trying to be, have, have a kind right. of pejorative about, you know, meddlesome and kind of attention-seeking and credit-seeking producers, you have become, you know, like one of the most important producers in the history of television. And a lot of that comes from, in I would my say in the history of the world. Well, in the history, in all other universes, in all other galaxies, yeah, wherever yeah. wherever a product is yeah. consumed around the galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> but you have become, uh, you just ruined my whole, I was trying yeah. to be so heartfelt here. Yeah. Uh, sorry. But you know, it's okay. No, you're not sorry. I know you mean it. Um, well, but you have become someone who embodies to me what a great producer really, really is. And that is someone who, you know everyone's job, and you know when what they're doing, even in the smallest detail, when it's working and when it's not working. I, I think that what I liked, and maybe it's growing up in Canada, but the actor-manager, you know, I know with Shakespeare, not to put myself in the same category, that's really for others to do, but the, I know that he had to have a guy like Farley and Belushi that the audience loved, and Falstaff ends up in a play that, 
really did, doesn't, but you know he was brought back by popular demand. And I think that when you're dealing with actors and writing and, and costume people and an audience and how you're going to get people into the Globe Theater, it's not much different. And the fact that there's the, the greatest poetry probably ever written in the English language is also in there, that wasn't what he was advertising. Producing, for me anyway, is like an invisible art. If you're any good at it, you leave no fingerprints. The writer wrote it. You always say that was so-and-so's script. The uh, director directed it. The star had the idea in high school. And that's kind of what it is. And the only way you prove your worth is you leave a body of work and people go, oh, that accident happened there again. That, oh, I see. So, you know, you try and get the best out of people. If you look around the room and you're the smartest person in the room, then you're in the wrong room. Right. You know, you want to get the most talented people you can find and then... Um, Bring out the best in them. Yeah. But you also have, if I may say yes. so, a kind of Darwinian approach to this in the years I've been here where you're yeah. not someone who's sitting down. I mean, you've had close personal relationships yes. and you've developed lifelong or career-long friendships with some of the most important people you've worked with. But as a rule, I, I don't see you sitting down like a father figure right. to the people here. You tend to let them slug it out and let the cream rise to the top, correct? Yes, you view it as a competitive when somebody's environment. in trouble, they're well, you're there to lend a hand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But they, I'm talking about but I'm talking the creative process. Yeah. I think that you kind of guide it. You don't the make it. Yeah, the only way you can manage creative people is with very loose reins. I think if you're all over everything, between dress and air, you know what that meeting is like. And it's just, there's no more appeal then. This is what we're doing, this is how we're doing it. And, and everyone falls into place. But up to that point, it's kind of fractious and everybody's got an opinion and nobody likes anybody else's work. The idea that it's a variety show, by that I mean that there's a variety of styles and tastes, that there's the lowest comedy and the, and the brightest comedy and that they all coexist or that this group doesn't like that musical act and that group thinks that the joke's unupdated or they don't agree with the politics of it. That's kind of the community of it. And that's Lorne Michaels. He says he picked up his value system at summer camp. I wanted to make fair what is never a fair thing, show business. We were a community. It was just set up what was a value system. Do you know what I mean? It was not driven by economics. It was driven by if it's successful, there'll be more than enough money. Uh, Are you saying you're disappointed in how you've done? No, I'm saying I would do it exactly the same way now, I, I, yeah, I would do it exactly the same. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Oddly enough, the title of my show comes from a phrase that Lauren says about 30 times a day. Here's the thing. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. 
With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.